This is Top Floor, episode 119. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 119. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Scott Lamont grew up in Ponte Vedra, Florida, just south of Jacksonville, and shamefully attended the University of Florida. After getting a bachelor's degree in landscape architecture, he headed south to Fort Lauderdale to work for EDSA for what he thought would be a couple of years. A little bit longer than that later, Scott has built a life in South Florida and serves as CEO of EDSA, a landscape architecture and planning firm with a strong hospitality focus and portfolio. At EDSA, Scott leads an international team of more than 200 people in eight offices, And he is motivated by the belief that designers have a responsibility to influence the dynamics between nature, space, and people. Today, Scott and I are going to talk about design stories, dead space, and deconstructed hotels. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals and anybody else who have burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Franklin. Here is what Franklin has to say. There was a lot of momentum around outdoor spaces at hotels during the pandemic, specifically meeting and event spaces. Where does that trend stand now? I don't know, Scott, what do you think? I am not up to date on these design trends. Well, first, I'll jump back and acknowledge your dig on the University of Florida (laughs) as we started out of the box, um, evident by the area code on the call button. I think I understand the root of that comment, and we'll just let it slide. There was a a relatively recent uh, football game that I I feel like... we'll continue. We'll continue. (laughs) We're going to skip over that part. Got it. Uh, it's, um, it's a it's a great question and it is you know certainly during the pandemic there was a, a push to the outdoors which you know from our perspective as landscape architects was you know very welcome obviously um, many of the things that were programmed and thought about during that time are things that are always top of mind for us um, as planners and landscape architects so what we've seen is a better understanding of how to utilize those spaces and how to program them and maybe they were spaces that were overlooked prior to and then there was a necessity to try to figure out how do we accommodate this and oh by the way we can do it in this fashion and now they've realized hotels have realized that these spaces are very viable and usable and they continue to be used in program it's so amazing to me the 
level of creativity that hotels and restaurants and shops were able to reach during that time period ideas that maybe had never occurred to anyone sort of you know necessity was the mother of invention in that case and it's exciting to see hotels add more flexible indoor outdoor unusual kinds of spaces so hopefully that will continue well it it, it hopefully will and i think what it did in in my mind is it you know, force people to look at things a little bit differently. You know, you knew you couldn't necessarily do it the same way you've always done it. So everybody had, you know, to take a pause and say, well, how, how can we accomplish this now? And that's kind of a fun way to think about, especially when we get into repositioning old properties. It's a good mindset for operators and owners to be in. That makes a lot of sense. You were first attracted to a job at EDSA because of the company's legacy. Can you explain a little bit about what that legacy is? Sure. I mean, our firm was founded in 1960. So EDSA has been around for a while. And certainly while I was in college, I was aware of the firm's practice. But it was really probably my junior year or so when Ed Stone Jr., our founder, he's the EDS and EDSA. Um, visited the University of Florida and um, gave a <laughs> gave a talk about the firm's work and their portfolio and the projects that they had around the globe. And while I had seen it in magazines and I, you know, had aspired to do that as a as a student, it really personalized it because Ed was a gentleman and he was he could talk to you in a way that made you feel like the most and only important person in the world. And it really made me realize how tangible this profession was and the work that the firm was doing, um, you know, was something I could really be a part of. And I actually had a friend who had interned a year before at EDSA. And when he came back from his internship, he rushed to find me and his, his words to me were like, this place was made for you. You have to go there. And uh, that's really cool. And it seemed like it was a good fit. So Scott, despite what I think, before you and I met, landscape architecture is about more than just where to like place shrubs in a garden. Can you explain the scope of that, the scope of what your company does? Like what happens when you're brought to a piece of raw land, for example? Well, you know, that's the best time for us to come into a project is in that early stage where we can help craft the vision, looking at the site and the land and think about the experiences that we want to create, um, the memories that we want people to make, how we want them to take advantage of the site, but then also um, understanding what the best uses of the site are and the environmental impacts that we need to consider in looking at that. So we come onto a property with all of that in mind and try to choreograph an experience, you know, siting buildings, siting roadways, you know, creating vistas and portals where, you know, people will one day enjoy an experience, um, you know, to create kind of a holistic vision for a development. You mentioned sustainability. How does that intersect with your firm's work? Is it an all the time thing every once in a while? Tell me about that. Well, again, you know, coming from the position of of landscape architecture, it's always been top of mind for us. And it's fabulous that we're in a place in our industry now where it's really the forefront of the conversation. 
but it's it really is so much more than just looking at the environment. It's about building healthy places, about well-being, about culture, you know, creating places that will endure, right? And that will be authentic and of that place um, is an important aspect of it. So it's it's always part of the work that we do. And we're in an interesting place in the industry now where the tools that we have are so much more sophisticated than they were even just a few years ago to really understand landscape and site performance in a meaningful way. You know, things like, you know, water conservation and understanding better ways that we can design. And while we're making design decisions, see real-time impacts of what it will yield in the outcome. Um, and that's allowing us as designers to, you know, really have better tools to make good decisions on properties. So it's it's a great time for that in our industry and we're all continuing to push toward it. So a long answer to your question, but yes, it's a, <laughs> it's a focus on just about everything we do. I want to ask maybe for a, a specific example, like what what is something that impacts the in the sustainability or environmental aspects of a project that that an ordinary person might not think about? Well, one of the things that is probably easy for people to understand and tangible is just materials, right? And if you think about a project where you're going to specify a stone, let's say on an amenity area, like a pool deck, you would see at a typical resort hotel. If you're bringing that stone or that tile in from Italy, right? There's a certain carbon footprint that comes with it. If you're specifying that from a regional or a local supplier where it's, it's being brought in locally, it's a completely different, um, you know, uh, footprint that happens from that development. It also benefits the community that you're building the property in. So there's a whole a host of things that you can do as a designer um, to help influence a positive outcome. Got it. That makes sense. You know, I've opened two hotels and I have consulted with more than 200, probably almost 300 hotels. And I know from experience that the story or the intent of a design does not always get communicated or shared with each new generation of staff that comes on board, like even in the first six months, you'll experience a good amount of turnover and all of a sudden, everything you learned is gone. How can hoteliers do a better job of keeping that design story alive? Or even the thing like what you said about the tiles, you know, these tiles are sourced locally because... it's a lower carbon footprint. How do you make sure that people know that stuff that's so interesting? Well, the best experience that I've had where I've seen an operator try to capture that information was when we finished the Riviera Resort, which we did for Disney um, in Orlando, where they actually interviewed the designers and project managers in a very similar fashion to what we're doing right now to explain the design from the very beginning. So you know that that narrative and that story would be captured. And that was to be utilized, you know, for future management of the property so that they could understand, you know, the vision that was created. Because so much thought and care goes into the identity and building the vision of the property. And there are so many things that are nuanced and subtle that can get lost over time as you as you noted in your question. So it's really important to document it. And it's something even within our own projects, you know, I'll sit with my partners 
and we'll be meeting with a client and they'll tell a story about a project that I've been to a hundred times or we've talked about a thousand times and I'll look at them and go, I didn't know that. That's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. You know, so (laughs) it's an ongoing effort to try to capture that information, but it's so important because it's meaningful to the guest, right? And if you're going to stay at a destination that's just a destination, okay. But if you know the backstory and you know the narrative and the why, um, it means so much more to people. I feel like this design interview is like my next side hustle from my side hustle. (laughs) Because I'm just envisioning that you could make it such that there's like a little teeny plaque that says play this. And you've got almost like a podcast that you can listen to about the different... Oh, that would be really cool. All right. I'm going to give you a $1 royalty if I pull this off and (laughs) make it a company. That sounds great for each episode, right? Yeah. um, Okay. (laughs) Speaking of design story, EDSA recently completed Naviva which is a Four Seasons Resort in Punta Mita, Mexico. And you've called that a deconstructed hotel. What is that? What is a deconstructed hotel? Did I deconstruct the pronunciation of that hotel? And why should hotel developers pay attention to this kind of a trend? You, you're fine on the pronunciation. You're good there. Um, you know the, the concept of the deconstructed hotel is really just thinking about the entire site, the entire space. It's not just the box, so to speak, of where the hotel exists in the immediate areas where you would expect um, the arrival or the amenities to be to create that little tight package. It's really looking more holistically at the property and trying to curate and create moments within those uh, within that broader landscape um, that impact the story of the property that help express you know the region or the community or the culture or the environment to really um, you know enhance that guest experience and Naviva is a great example of that I mean it's probably at the highest level where you're really engaged deeply in nature and deeply within the native culture of that area. And it's, it's really just about trying to look at it differently. We think about like a typical, just say from a, from a resort environment, you know, your resort pool, you know, there's an, there's an anticipated way that you would do that, that you see around resorts around the world, but it could also be done where you have to take a little bit of a journey and you're kind of forcing that experience through nature, through the site to find their, your way to that, um, wonderful amenity and create an experience that is is marginally better than it would have been if you just popped out of the elevator and jumped in the pool. <laughs> I have this prediction that hotel companies are eventually going to become lodging companies, sort of blurring the lines between traditional hotels, vacation rental, glamping, RV parks, assisted living, all that stuff. I think it's all going to become one big mix and we're going to call it lodging and it's a hospitality business. Have you seen anything in your work that would either support my prediction or prove me wrong and thus get you kicked off the show? What do you think? Short answer, yes. Okay. No, the you, you've got it right, and I think I think it's definitely a trend that we recognize as well. And and there's some examples of things that we're working on currently um, that are just kind of bringing it to life. Working with a group called Sun Communities that are looking at you know what 
if I say the words RV park, people are going to think of, you know, the old days and what that means, but looking at it in a completely different way and creating a resort and a hospitality experience that would rival any of your best hotels, uh, but doing it in a different way, building a different experience. Um, the other great example is the Evermore property in Orlando that we're doing with Dart Interest. It's about to open in April. Um, where they've actually created a vacation rental property within the resort product, right? Where they're building um, homes that you would essentially rent as part of a hotel pool within the overall resort environment, connected and tied to the overall amenities. So it is getting traction, you know, and, and you know, examples around the industry are popping up where you're seeing people think a little bit differently about hospitality in a broader sense. And that's super exciting. And those are trends that we expect to continue. In a recent survey, someone who I did not pay to say this said that Top Floor is a must-listen for hospitality people, insightful, funny, informative, with amazing guests. Someone else said, I listened to one and now I am becoming addicted. I also did not pay this person. And yet another person called the show an entertaining interview offering tricks, learnings, anecdotes, and heartwarming tales from hoteliers. No money changed hands for that one either. Here's my point. Somebody somewhere likes listening to Top Floor. And if you are not sharing the show with your friends and colleagues, you are really doing them dirty. I truly appreciate every minute you spend listening to Top Floor and would be really thankful if you would follow the show wherever you listen. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from each and every episode of Top Floor with some really practical, specific tips to try either in their businesses or in their personal lives. Almost every hotel I've encountered has some kind of a dead zone, like a seating area where no one ever sits, <laughs> a beautiful view that no one can see or you know something else like that. Aside from a multi-million dollar overhaul, do you have any advice for a hotel team to either eliminate or activate those kind of dead zones? Yes. Um, my advice would be to back out of the property for a minute and arrive as if you were a guest visiting it for the first time and try to take it all in. Um, because there's so many things that happen over time on a property, particularly a property that's been open for a number of years, you know, where the, the valet operations may have um, grown to a level where it's controlling the whole arrival experience and we're missing the view that was once intended to, to be had or the experience that was part of that original narrative. And now it's cones and cars backed up and, you know, the valets don't want to walk far. So they're queuing cars up front is a good example. Mm -hmm. And just trying to see things with fresh eyes as your guests would. It's easier said than done. And it's oftentimes the first thing we do when we uh, uh, attack a project that's a repositioning is we just start to think of it differently from the ground up and ask questions, you know, What's behind this wall? I mean, we I could think of a project that we did um, in um, here in Florida, the Boca Raton, which is a, a reimagination of the old Boca Raton Resort and Club. It was originally built in 1926. So there's a lot of history on that property. And there's a lot of things that had gotten lost 
or added on over the years that when you come in with a complete repositioning, you start to think about, well, what is behind that wall? You you mean there's a fireplace behind that wall? We really, (laughs) maybe we should take that wall down because someone made a decision in 1976 to put a wall up there that makes no sense today in 2023. So, and that's a large, um, obviously renovation project, but this applies to any property, you know, and, and walking around with a critical eye and asking questions of why and what if. And I think that's the most important piece of it, the advice that I would give. I think that's good advice. Even bringing your kid or your spouse or you know friend with you can help you see things that you might not see in the day in day out process too. Yeah. I don't know if my estimate on time is right on this one, but I think it's like probably the last 15, 20 years, maybe longer, we've seen residential design become more hotel-like. For example, you can buy hotel beds for your house. I have one. You can buy sheets. There's like That's a marketing term now, hotel quality, this, that, and the other. What do you think are some elements of hospitality landscape design that homeowners might consider or that have become a trend? The answer can be none. Like If you're like, no, I don't think these giant palm trees really makes sense in your little tiny front yard. <laughs> right. Well, I think that, and my answer is yes. And I think it's about trying to blur the lines between the indoors and the outdoors. Maybe do this, you know, consistently on, you know, hotel developments that we work on. We try not to have a hard division between the interior and the exterior. We let spaces flow to one another. And I, I don't think we often think about our homes in the same way. Right. So there's an opportunity for that to really amenitize and create that outdoor experience to kind of connect with the indoor experience um, is a very what a good idea. easy and meaningful way. Um, you know, there are other examples, you know, and you walk into a hotel and it has a certain smell. Right. There's a certain sensory experience that you that you, you know, um, experience as you arrive to a, a particular property. You know, you could think about that type of an approach in your own home and, you know, just touch the senses in a different way and kind of elevate the overall experience. I mean, at the end, hospitality extends well beyond hotels. I mean, just think of it in a broader sense. Excellent. What do you think is the most common planning mistake you see hotel developers make? This one's easy. Um, and, and I'll apologize. Going to the University of Florida? No. (laughs) And I'll apologize in advance to some of my, uh, water feature engineering friends, but, um, vehicular water features. Um, and what I mean by that is I've seen it many times where a great deal of attention and expense is paid to a large water feature in a vehicular setting that you blow by at 35 or 40 miles an hour and don't really even get to experience in the way maybe the designer thought or the operator or owner thought you would. Um, That water feature may have a place, but that place is a place where people can interact and hear it and touch it and understand it and not drive by it at 35 or 40 miles an hour. Um, So it's something that often, you know, when you're trying to create an experience, it's an easy one say, Oh, let's do a water feature here. It'll be great. And, you know, and, and I'm sure it has its place in some moments, but um, it's often overused. I would never have thought of that, but now I can think of like three examples where 
it's a complete waste. And how much money got spent on that? Well, and the amount of water um, that's getting used too. In, in today's world, we think about that differently. Yes. I thought you were going to say having a water feature near where people drive in to park because they end up falling into the water feature. <laughs> that is maybe number two on the list maybe. instead of... Yeah, maybe. So, so we have reached the fortune telling portion of the show. So now's the time to predict the future. Then we'll come back later and see if we were right. What is a prediction you have about the future of mixed use developments? I think my prediction is that all developments are going to be mixed use developments. And I I think we're seeing that in the work that we're doing is a much more thoughtful programming around the development and understanding the opportunities that can be um, realized in a, in a project versus just a standalone, I'm going to build an office building or I'm going to build a residential building or a hotel, thinking about it in a different way, particularly in an urban environment. If you could wave a magic wand and get rid of one type of landscape feature, I don't know if it's a plant or a hard material, what would it be? I think it would be um, kind of an overly developed paving pattern. And what I mean by that is, and I experienced this in my own career where I was very excited about this you know, paving pattern that was developed and then realized that it was covered with furniture and deck chairs and all the things that, you know, you need to live in a, in a hospitality environment. Um, when I could have paid more attention to the curation of the space, right? So that's the feature that I would wave my magic wand and say, let's not worry about that so much. Let's create better places. When you say paving pattern, are you referring to like, I don't know, a patio with bricks that go some this direction, some that direction, some this, like that kind of thing. Different color use and things like that. I mean, it certainly has its place and there are moments where you're trying to celebrate a specific thing, um, but understand when and where to use it. Interesting. You filled with stuff that I have never thought about before, but now I'm like, let me go look around for a paving pattern. (laughs) So what is next for you and what's next for your company? Well, I think uh, several things come to mind. I mean, one of the things that that we're taking on as an organization is really a deeper dive in technology and that integration. We talked about sustainability earlier, um, integrating that thought process with technology. It's an incredible opportunity for the industry to be able to have a more critical understanding of landscape performance. And being able to measure that in the design process is something that we're pretty excited about. And tackling that in a more meaningful way, I think, is a a very exciting endeavor for our organization as we integrate that into our design process. Um, The other piece of it really, too, is is we're continuing to grow as an organization. You know, we've recently opened an office in Raleigh and Dallas and now heading into Denver as we look at growing our domestic footprint and getting more engaged, particularly with hospitality work here domestically in the United States. Um, We're pretty excited about that. Excellent. I love to hear it when people's companies are growing. Okay, folks, before we tell Scott goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Scott, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? Well, 
you know, doing the type of work that we do, you know, EDSA is, is an international company and we work all over the world. So as a result, we've all been very well traveled. We've traveled in just about every place you can think of over the years. And we've learned a lot about traveling. And one of the things, and you, if you've ever traveled with me, you know that there's a rule of never check your bag. And so <laughs> the story that I would tell would be a story that I was traveling with one of my colleagues and we were heading to uh, Sihanoukville, Cambodia. So it was kind of a long stretch from Miami, you know, going through Chicago, then Seoul, then Phnom Penh, and then a three and a half hour drive to Sihanoukville. So grief. we're standing at the Miami airport and having this debate. Well, we do, want, do we want to log our luggage that far or do we want to just check it? And I'm no way we're checking this luggage. I'm carrying my luggage with me the entire time. And my colleague <laughs> made a different choice and checked his bag. And as we traveled for 38 hours or whatever it was to get to the other side of the world, and we're standing tired, worn out, and Sihanoukville, and the bags finally pop off. And there are no bags for my colleague. So oh no, we're there uh... for four days visiting a site that we were we were developing a master plan for a resort development on and he basically had to live out of my suitcase for four days <laughs> because there are no options to go to uh-huh. macy's or target um, when you're in sionukville um to resupply so oh, so my yeah. goodness and you know aside from the site photos being pretty funny because on day one you see scott wearing a certain outfit and then on day two you see my colleague wearing the same outfit that scott just wore (laughs) um he now happens to be our coo and my partner (laughs) so it's a story i do like to share because it's a lot of fun to tell so oh my gosh okay so i used to be a check bag person because I am really short and it is the greatest moment of anxiety in the world if you are short to have to put your bag in the overhead bin. Like it is humiliating. I'm blushing right now just thinking about it. Like the, there are certain things in the world that get me driving up to a toll booth is another one, but that is the absolute worst. However, I have now got my act together. I haven't grown any, but I have grown some confidence. And so now I absolutely carry on every single time. Well, it's the best advice a seasoned traveler will ever give you. And trust me, it has saved me more times than I can count. So. <laughs> Scott Lamont, thank you so much for being here. I learned so much in our conversation. I know our listeners did. And I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 119. Jonathan Albano is our editor, producer, and all around genius. He even wrote and performed our theme song with vocals by Cameron Albano. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And your rating or review will go a long way in helping us give you more of what you like. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 